Hello, I'm Dr. Sarah Jarvis, your host for the HEPcast, a podcast series about the people fighting to eliminate hepatitis C, a disease that affects 71 million people worldwide. Today's episode is the first of our two UK in focus episodes. The UK is a country which is currently on track to meet the World Health Organization's goals of eliminating the virus by 2030. And I'm thrilled to be joined by three special guests. Professor Graham Foster, a professor of hepatology at Queen Mary's University of London. Rachel Halford, CEO of the Hepatitis C Trust. And Professor John Dillon, a professor of hepatology and gastroenterology at the University of Dundee. They'll be sharing firsthand experiences of how they are advancing elimination in the UK. For those listening from overseas, the UK has a publicly funded healthcare system free at the point of service, the National Health Service. The healthcare system is devolved across the four countries in the UK, England, Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland, and that means local governments make decisions about the health and care services in their country. Rachel, tell me, when did you first know you were living with hepatitis C? So I came to London after living or growing up and living in Somerset to change my life, to get clean, essentially, after using heroin for many years. And I had a test. And that actually was the first time that I found out about hepatitis C. And that was in 1998. During my previous part of my life, I guess that's the best way to say it, I actually had no idea about hepatitis C. It was literally have a hepatitis C test and have an HIV test. And my biggest concern at the time was I didn't have HIV. I wasn't worried about hep C because I didn't really know anything about it. Unfortunately, of course, you were in very good company in those days. An awful lot of people didn't know anything about it. But presumably, if you didn't know anything about it, you weren't in a position to want to start treatment straight away. So what did first prompt you to start treatment? The thing for me was when I got diagnosed, and I I hear a lot of people say is that the, the, the doctor said to me, don't worry about it, you'll die of something else first. And actually the gravitas of hepatitis C and what it meant to have it wasn't, I don't know whether, I think it probably wasn't known at the time, but also the message within that kind of my peer group was, well, it's part and parcel, it's your own consequence, so you've done it to yourself, so actually just get on with it, it's no big deal. I'd become very unwell, and I wasn't actually sure whether I was just really unwell or whether it was to do with the hepatitis C. I had lots of bruising, my legs would swell all the time, very itchy skin, no knowledge of whether I had something else wrong with me or whether it was the hep C. So uh, I was contacted by the hospital, they'd had some success with an older version of treatment, And I made a decision to go for it. I have to say it wasn't an easy decision because I had friends that had been through this older treatment and none of them had a particularly nice time. But I guess the reason I say that is is because that tells you how unwell I was, that I actually weighed up this thing of doing this older treatment, which I knew wasn't going to be very pleasant. You have clearly been a huge success, but clearly what none of us want is for other people to be in your position to hear about hep C for the first time, know nothing about it. So how do you use your story to encourage other people to get tested and treated? I, I guess my story is used in the work that I do. So my story, my experience, my life experience, particularly of 
the older treatments and my journey because it doesn't have to be that way today. In fact, it shouldn't be that way today. The conversation needs to be different today. And I'm sure we'll come on to it. It's very easy to get treated today. And when I was diagnosed, we none of us knew what the, the consequences of hepatitis C were. I guess the relevance of my story is that get treated because my best friend was diagnosed at the same time as me and she died a year ago because of hepatitis C. And the ramifications, yes, it takes a long time to impact on your liver or for you to get seriously ill. But actually, when you do get seriously ill, it happens very quickly. And that does not need to happen today because you can just have a simple treatment. Now, you were diagnosed 22 years ago. How have you noticed the health system has changed in the UK since you were diagnosed? Incredible. In terms of hepatitis C, it's been incredible. I joined the Trust five years ago. And I joined as a deputy to the previous CEO, Charles Gore. At that time, it was my first venture into the health system since I'd been treated prior to in 2007. And the difference was incredible. There were new treatments coming on. There was an enthusiasm. There was knowledge. There was a buy-in. I guess that's what it is. Essentially, there was a buy-in from... NHS England, from people within government, there was a completely different attitude to hepatitis C. I think also because the damage was beginning to be seen, people were dying and there was an opportunity to stop people dying. Now, you mentioned the Hepatitis C Trust, which you lead. Can you tell us a bit more about it, what its goals are? So the Hepatitis C Trust is a patient organisation. I feel quite privileged because we were set up by patients. We're run by people who are patients or people affected by hepatitis C. In its formative years, it was about raising awareness where there was no awareness, making sure that hepatitis C was on the government, in fact, the world agenda. And then more recently, over the last 10 years, it's been about utilising peers. So the model that we were born out of to encourage people to advocate for an elimination tender, to advocate and find people who have been affected and encourage them to get tested and come forward to get treated. At the Hepatitis C Trust, the core of our services that we deliver now are all peer programmes. And they are all about, so we employ and we have people we employ, but we also have volunteers, people who have lived experience. And what they do is they share their story. And within their story, they we weave in key hep C messages and they deliver them to either in drug services or homeless centres, homeless shelters. So we deliver groups, but we also do a lot of one-to-one work. And, and this is about people with lived experience sharing their experience with other people to encourage them to get tested and to then get treated. And then we support them to get treated as well. It's fantastic to hear about the journey of the organisation, Rachel. Now, you mentioned they're advocating for an elimination tender, which I think was established with NHS England in 2019. Ray, maybe you can explain a bit about what that entailed and your involvement. So in 2019, we decided to start with a national procurement. And what we offered to our pharmaceutical industry partners was a collaboration. We said, we all want to treat large numbers of patients. You've got a lot of skill sets that we don't have, particularly in communication, particularly in accessing patient groups that are challenging for the NHS to get into. So why don't we pool our resources and work together? And the consequence of that was a very complicated procurement deal that dragged on for probably far longer than any of us would have wished. But the end was we've now got a long-term arrangement where together with partners in the pharmaceutical industry, we collaborate. 
So what we do is we have elimination initiatives. Some of them are funded by the National Health Service, some are funded by industry, and some are jointly funded. But we all work together to make sure that we can input to the patients in the way that suits us best. So for example, some of our partners in local authorities are responsible for drug service providers. And the National Health Service is specifically exempted from that because that's handled by a different group of people. But our pharmaceutical industry partners can collaborate directly. So we can therefore work with local authorities via the pharmaceutical industry, I think have been pretty impressive in that we've started to see a significant increase in the number of people who use drugs, who get tested, who get treated and get cured. So I think that partnership is a much more productive way of working. How important is the role that industry plays in NHS England's efforts to eliminate hep C? I think from the NHS England perspective, they're equal partners. They really have contributed in all sorts of creative ways. They've brought a, a new dynamism, they've brought some new ideas, and they've changed the way we look at things. It's taken a little bit of interesting discussion to meld two entirely different systems with entirely different outlooks. But I think there's a real willingness on both sides to make this work for the better good. And when you start to think about what we need to do in the future, it's not about tablets and people anymore. It's about healthcare, And that involves much more than just selling a medication. It involves education. It involves patient finding. It involves lifestyle changes. And that's much better done collaboratively. So I think there's a lot that could be learned from this. And I hope that other disease areas will take advantage of it. So, Rachel, I'd like to bring you in here. What's the 2019 NHS deal meant for the community? Incredible. It's commitment and it's action. So there's key things. There is this national commitment to eliminate hepatitis C, which in itself is incredible. But what that's done for us in the community is it put us right at the centre. So we worked with NHS England, with the pharmaceutical companies, in developing the models moving forward. And, and I think the thing about the deal that was done in England was it's unique. What's unique about it, it has this case-finding initiative, which and that by default has created the most incredible partnership working across the board. So there is no separation. The patient is in the centre with the funders, with the drugs, and we have this incredible partnership, which... And I think COVID has been really interesting because what it's shown is that there is, because there is this deal, there is this constant drive for action. And I think we are so fortunate to have that, really fortunate. And for us at the Hepatitis C Trust, it's enabled us to increase and further develop our peer models and actually be delivering um, and supporting thousands of people to access treatment. I'm fascinated because I was about to ask you to put on your blue sky thinking hat and say 2019, that's far too recent to be seeing any changes yet. But from what I hear, you genuinely think you're beginning to see an impact towards this 2030 WHO goal. We're very confident that we've cured, and when I say cured, I mean got rid of the virus and discharged from clinic over 50,000 patients now. We've seen a dramatic reduction in deaths from hepatitis C. We've seen a reduction in liver transplants from hepatitis C. So we think we're already starting to reap the benefits of this. And I think we've got a little bit of a way to go, but I'm very confident that over the next three or four years, we can become one of the earliest countries to eliminate hepatitis C. 
I know John is desperate to come in and tell us his perspective from north of the border. I was just going to echo Graham's point that we're already seeing the effect of the DAAs in terms of the number of transplants for hepatitis C falling away, the number of liver failures are being admitted falling away. And even now we're starting to see the number of liver cancers related to hepatitis C falling away, which took a, a year or two longer to start to see that benefit. So I think we're already seeing those early benefits in terms of that reduction in early mortality. And hopefully we'll start to see the same effects on transmission of, vira- of, of the virus. I think, you know, John, when you talk about seeing changes in transmission, you're being um, a little shy there. We are all looking very enviously at what you've achieved up north of the border, where you've actually got areas that have, you think, cleared hepatitis C and achieved a microelimination. I think we have to acknowledge that you're probably the first major centre to really be pretty confident that you've got hepatitis C very much on the back foot and very much eliminated. Yes, I think it's important that we talk about what elimination means so that people understand that. And from the World Health Organization, we're talking about a 90% reduction in prevalence. So there's still a little bit of it around, but not very much. It turns it from a common problem to an uncommon problem. And that's what we've achieved in Tayside. And I think that's a good way forward. Within the Tayside region, which is 416,000 people, we have reduced hepatitis C to 10% of what it was. That's down to about 200 people left in the region with hepatitis C from a starting point of about 2,400. So we have moved that forward. So we were completing that process during the, the COVID epidemic, and that required some changes to our service. But in principle, it was five strands. It was a more conventional general practice hospital outpatient service with nurse-led services. It was treatment within community pharmacies, by pharmacists or by in-reaching nurses. It was treatment within prisons. It was treatment within addiction centres and treatment within needle exchanges. And those were the five strands that had to be changed and adopted. John, I'm fascinated by getting the levels of virus down. We've seen with COVID that you get the levels of virus down. And if you hang back, the wretched thing returns. Are you worried you're going to see that up north of the border? That's the next part of our work. Once we've got the levels down, whether we're going to see a second wave or not. And I think the important thing with hepatitis C is We know how it's transmitted. It's by injection drug use and in other parts of the world by contamination of needles for medical use and by monitoring people within needle exchanges, within drug addiction therapy centres and monitoring for hepatitis C and treating those people who are found to be positive very early and straight away, that should reduce the transmission of the virus. And that's what we are hoping to see in the next phase, that by offering treatment very readily and easily to people who are still using drugs and injecting, we can stop the transmission of the virus. That's the unknown question as to how much more treatment and work we'll need to do to keep the virus suppressed. Rachel, I saw you nodding when you heard about those vulnerable populations that John was talking about. Can you tell us a bit more about the work being done to eliminate HCV in prisons? Prisons is, a for me, I think, a no-brainer. Prisons, you've got a population where anything up to 60% of people who go in there actually are at risk of having hepatitis C, have injected drugs previously. And one of the key areas that we've worked in over the last few years has been whole prison testing. In England, the BBV policy was launched all probably 2013, and that was gradually introduced across the prison estate. And what that has meant is that 
everybody who comes to prison should be tested for BBV, so hepatitis C, hepatitis B and HIV as they come in. So if everybody's being tested when they come in, this provides an opportunity to actually almost eliminate hepatitis C in specific prisons. So we came up with this idea or this goal whereby when a prison had its BBV um, testing operating at full capacity, that a team would then go into a prison over a period of time, so maybe two days, depending on the size of the prison, maybe two weeks, and we would test the whole of the prison population in one go. And what that would then mean was that anybody coming in would be tested, all the back population, you would know their status. So in theory, you could say that we've had some kind of micro-elimination, a little bit like so when John was talking about Tayside, which is incredible, the work that's happened up there. That sounds like an extraordinary initiative and such an important addition to the routine testing in place. Graeme, do you think COVID has made vulnerable populations more aware of their health? One of the paradoxes of COVID infection is that it's made people much more aware of their health. Certainly, we've seen south of the border some increasing engagements in needle exchange and drug services from people who've in the past stayed away from those services We've been able to corral people into homeless shelters where we've been able to go and test and treat. I wonder if you've seen COVID as an advantage in accessing some of the most challenging populations that we serve. I think it's been a double-edged sword. So we have had less footfall through the venues that we're trying to reach people in because clearly there's a lot of stigma around hepatitis C. People are quite fearful of strange and new environments and environments that they are in for shorter periods of time and being moved out of. So in the needle exchanges, there's less of the hanging around, having whatever free food happens to be in the needle exchange that day, and people are being moved out. So we're having less opportunity with those patients. Within the opiate substitution therapy patients who are picking up their methadone from a pharmacist because of trying to reduce the workload and the pressure within the pharmacies, Many of those patients have been moved from the traditional daily pickup to weekly pickup, which has been a positive thing for many of those people and has allowed them to have, um, you know, to structure their life differently and clearly are moving outside less because of COVID. But it does mean that the space within the pharmacy is now less occupied. The rooms where they were picking up their opiate substitution therapy are available for more of the time. So we have more chance to have longer conversations with those people. So where we've lost in the needle exchanges to an extent, we've gained in the opiate substitution therapy arena. And we've also gone on and there was concerns about food and getting people out and the local councils were organising some vans for delivery of food into some of the, the poorer areas of Dundee, which are, are, of course, the same areas where many of the people were trying to reach And so we went out with the food vans, which people were keen to pick up those things and to exchange needles. And we were able to have those conversations that we would have had in the needle exchanges out in the streets, out of the back of the vans. No, I'm fascinated. My initial thought when you said that people had moved from daily collection of opiate substitutes to weekly was that there would be less opportunity for engagement. But in fact, what you're saying is, Actually, the pharmacists are able to engage and the experts are able to engage more. But from my perspective, I think the real key of what you've been saying is this idea of multi-agency collaboration, a multi-pronged approach. Graham, is that something that 
you've looked at in England, south of the border, as it were? We're very keen to multitask. And there's a lot of talk in the field about task shifting, which I think has resonance beyond hepatitis C. We've got some very skilled nursing practitioners. We've got some very skilled mental health nurses out in the community dealing with people with injecting drug problems. And they've been absolutely key. We have managed to bring in what we call peers in England. These are people with lived experience of hepatitis C, and they've been an absolute godsend in getting out to people that are frightened of the healthcare service. Perhaps they've had poor experiences in the past. Perhaps they see that they'll be stigmatized. And having someone who can go and say, I used to use drugs too, and this is how I found it. This is how I got through it. Why don't I come and introduce you to people who will look after you properly? So they've been a huge asset. I think what we haven't quite managed to do in the English version at the moment is get the pharmacist as involved as we would like. There are some legal differences in who can and cannot dispense and prescribing between the English and the Scottish systems. And that's rather tripped us up because I'm not allowed by law to give drugs to a pharmacist who can then hand them out to a patient. The pharmacist has to purchase the drugs themselves. And that's just one of those rather frustrating legal issues that have uh, held us back. We're looking at creative ways around that at the moment. And again, as we go forward into areas where we don't want people moving around the country quite as much, we don't want people keep coming into hospital. If a pharmacist can handle your healthcare needs and you've got to go there to pick up your medication, why don't we do everything in a one-stop shop? So I think there are huge advantages here to bringing in other people And it's something we need to capitalise on in other disease areas. I couldn't agree more. And I think the other thing to point out is that the community pharmacist is perhaps one step removed from formal healthcare services, both primary and secondary care. And therefore, perhaps somebody who's wary about going to see a hospital, we know that can be really challenging for people who are not fully engaged with society. But for them, going into a pharmacy is much less challenging. John, how much difference has it made to you having pharmacists involved? It's made a huge difference. If you live in an urban area, your nearest pharmacy is on average 400 metres away from you. It makes things very local and less, much less fearful. The ability to pop in on the way past, it's not a big event to organise. And for particularly people who are fearful of going elsewhere, feel stigmatised perhaps by their behaviours or their disease, that they don't want to confront other people, that they don't know, they may have a relationship with their pharmacy because they're likely to be picking up medication on a regular basis anyway. When we asked the the people who were, which we were trying to engage with in terms of who they trusted most, etc., they had a huge trust in their local community pharmacy and were prepared to wait weeks to see their local pharmacy rather than their GP or another pharmacy, and certainly compared to hospital practice, etc. So it was a much less fearful environment. And for diseases that have become relatively simple now, like hepatitis C, where the diagnosis is simple and the treatment can be made very simple, that's the ideal thing where you can protocolize reliable diagnosis. So it's an ideal disease to start to model what we can achieve by using the pharmacy. But I agree with Graham and yourself that we could use the pharmacist for a wider number of diseases than we do at the moment. Now, of course, you mentioned that it's often through shared needles or in other countries was your comment through shared needles for medical issues. But in fact, of course, there have been many people who've contracted hepatitis C in the past through infected blood 
in our health service. Can I ask you, Graham, is there, are there any initiatives taking place focusing on their lives? So I think we've been talking over the last few minutes about the hepatitis C epidemic in the injection drug users. And that's been one of our main focuses because, of course, they're a group of people who are very often transmitting the virus. The group, frankly, that keep me awake at night are the group who caught hepatitis C in the past. And that really breaks into three different populations. There are those who were born outside the UK, and we have particular worries about people born in Pakistan. There is then that group of people who might have used drugs in the past. They put that uh, lifestyle behind them, and they very often don't realize that they might have left themselves exposed to hepatitis C. They might have caught the virus and not know about it. And at the moment, their liver is starting to fail from cirrhosis. And then the final group, as you mentioned, are those who were infected by contaminated blood products many years ago. There's a lot of debate about whether that was uh, appropriately managed at the time, but there have been a lot of efforts over the last 20, 30 years to find those patients. And what we're doing at the moment is some GP-based record searching. We have little search engines that worm their way through GP records, looking for risk factors for infection, flagging those up, and then our nurses go in and contact the patient and ask if they'd like to be tested. So we hope that we can deal with that. And then there's a little group of patients we hadn't thought about sitting in primary care, infected 30 years ago, who suddenly pop up with cirrhosis, liver cancer. And that, of course, would be a catastrophe for all involved. So I'm quite anxious about what I call the unknown unknowns. We're planning a study in 100,000 people that we will randomly test. So we will look through GP records, pick 100,000 people with no risk factors and do some testing in them. And what I hope that will show is if there's a little hidden undercurrent of people that we need to go pushing for. I'm keen to hear how confident John is that he's got everyone. Are you really sure there's not a little hidden cluster sitting away somewhere in the dark streets of Dundee? The epidemiology in Scotland is different to England. We've been searching and looking over the last 15 years with population surveys, looking at the prevalence. So the, the contribution has been small and we've found most of it We've used the search engines to go through the GP records. So I think we have covered those groups, but it needs to be constantly looked at. Another important group is those patients with abnormal liver function tests. And as part of the intelligent liver function testing initiative within Tayside, where we routinely check everybody for hepatitis C who has a low level abnormality of their liver function tests, we are picking up about 1% of those patients who have had hepatitis C infection in the past. Now, that's a group that have abnormal liver function tests, but that suggests it's a fairly low level. But they are at an advanced stage when we find them, and that is the group. It's small, but it, are the, it is the ones that will don't have an overt obvious risk factor or have long since forgotten about that risk factor. Many of them, it was recreational drug use 20 or 30 years ago rather than blood transfusion, but it's that mixed group. So it's interesting you say that. You, you do not have a monopoly on doing hepatitis C testing on patients with mildly abnormal liver function tests. But I wonder whether, obviously, we've got the NHS. How can other regions or countries adapt or recreate what's happened at the NHS Tayside project without, for instance, a national database of medical records? So I think a national database is hugely helpful because you can then track where you are compared to your estimated prevalence. I think a lot of it is simplifying therapy, making it easy and straightforward. It is a simple therapy to use, so making it as easy as possible so it's as close to the patient as possible. I think countries across the world, there is still stigma attached to hepatitis C, and destigmatizing that's important. And therefore, whichever route of infection is the commonest, whether it's iatrogenic through medical practices 
or whether it's driven through the injection of drugs. You have to adapt your services to make those work. And it's using the people who are closest to them. It's making the diagnosis simple in terms of using dry blood spot and moving away from venipuncture. How important is political will in England and Scotland in setting elimination targets and rallying all those stakeholders together? And dare I ask you, is there any friendly or otherwise competition within the UK? There's no friendly competition, but there's plenty of competition. (laughs) And actually, I think that's a very good thing. Firstly, there has been a political drive in England and I know in Scotland, and I think the Scots were a little ahead of the curve here. But political will is critical here, absolutely vital that people see the advantage. And in a way, hepatitis C has been quite an easy story to sell. There aren't many times you can sit down with a politician and say, look, there's probably 100, 100,000 people and you can cure them all. And in the long term, that will save you huge amounts of money. You won't need to do as many liver transplants. You won't see as many liver cancers. This is very cost effective and a good thing to do. And it's not very often a politician sees an opportunity to make a real change within their own parliamentary session. And that's really what's grabbed the attention. And I think we've been very fortunate in that. I would echo what Graham had said. Political involvement is very important. We've been fortunate having that from very early on. As he says, it's a very easy story to sell because of the quick turnaround, the fact that you can see lives being saved very quickly. And it's hugely cost effective over a relatively short time frame in terms of the lives saved, the transplants avoided and all the harrowing consequences that go with hepatitis C. And the political rivalry, I mean, clearly Scotland started programmes first, which was good and helped England move forward. And I'm sure the fact that England declared they were going to eliminate in 2025 had nothing to do with Scotland deciding it was going to do it by 2024. (laughs) So we're working hard together to achieve those things and sharing all the best ideas uh, and practice between the two uh, different systems that we have. I think the point that you make, John, is that there has been some friendly rivalry, but equally there's been a lot of exchange and a lot of sharing of best practice. And I think that's the right way to drive this. I think Northern Ireland's been a little bit behind the curve. I think they'd be the first to accept that. But they're now going to work together with us, I think, to try and take some of the English ideas. And I'm sure they've been in contact with some of our Scottish colleagues. So I think provided it's a collaborative approach, then everyone's a winner here. And how important was the community voice in setting those elimination targets? I think the community is often overlooked as a resource. And I think in England, what we've discovered working with the Hepatitis C Trust is that they are an enormous resource, not just in keeping the pressure on the politicians to drive things forward, but also actually providing a very different approach. They have a lot of political clout, and I'm sure Rachel will want to elaborate on uh, all the devious ways they've managed to achieve that. But they also bring lived experience of hepatitis C, and that lived experience, that first-hand knowledge is really important to us in setting policies. Devious ways, Graham. I think we're just really honest and upfront, but we have a freedom because we don't work for the NHS to actually fully lobby. I mean, the formative years were all about lobbying and gaining partners and and political buy-in, quite often in terms of just providing correct information. So finding supporters, local uh, ministers or supporters in NHS England, ensuring that the right information or raising awareness was achieved. When Charles Gore set up the Hepatitis C Trust, there was very little awareness around hepatitis C. And actually, it took the patients, people affected, to get out there, to raise awareness, to form partnerships with people, to garner that political partnerships. 
and political awareness. We made sure that when information did go out from Parliament or discussions were held in Parliament, that actually we made sure the information was correct. So I guess we have, I don't think it's devious, and that's quite funny. We just have a freedom that being a voluntary sector organisation that perhaps other um, partners don't have in the same way. And this is something that we've managed to do use across Scotland, England and Wales. And I think it's really important at this point to say that it was our predecessor who single-handedly, he set up the World Hepatitis Alliance and he did literally go to every single government in the world and lobbied them to raise awareness and for them to put hepatitis C on their agendas. I think that one of the things that we've been able to do is to to show that, A, there's a disadvantaged group here, so we're fighting for the, the disadvantaged. However, in saying that, hepatitis C costs a lot of money and you can always appeal to the benefits to the public purse. So it's not just about the human aspect, it's also about, as a government, the amounts of money that you can save if you address this. And working with your governments to have some kind of elimination deal it is so important. To have a strategy is so important. And often, for any of us across the world, it is the civil society, it is the voluntary organisations, the patients, the people on the ground who actually have the freedom to do that. We would not be where we are today with hepatitis C if Charles Gore had not gone to all the different governments and then worked with the World Health Organization. This is an incredible story of the power of the patient voice and how they can influence global bodies, local uh, own government bodies, local NHS, and then other patients, and just raise awareness so that we can eliminate this disease. I think the community are very important. They are the people that are most affected by hepatitis C and they want solutions that suit them. And they have been driving for this for, for many years. For many of them, they've done that very effectively. They are particularly effective at accessing politicians in a way that medics and clinically qualified people are often not. And we're often excluded because the government pays our salaries and we, our opinions count less than those with lived experience often. And so I think they have been very effective at putting that human voice. I think they have been extremely effective at lobbying and often getting the medical community to respond appropriately and pointing out where we are not responding. So it's been very much a joint co-produced effort. Moving on with that idea of community and the wider community, I think one of the big issues, for certainly for people who inject drugs, is these stereotypes. Do you think that your Tayside programme success has challenged some of those stereotypes? Undoubtedly, the fact that we're presenting this work to our local politicians, to our local healthcare providers who had a very negative um, view of it, the peer workers that um, Graham alluded to have been involved in Tayside, the coming together of the different branches of the different parts of the community and the voluntary organisations to help deliver a package of care has created a very positive story. And often the achievement of a cure of hepatitis C is a transforming experience in people's lives and allows them to start moving on to the road route to recovery. It may be the first thing they've succeeded in their entire lives, which have often been a fairly hard and rocky road. And this has been the opportunity where someone has taken an interest in them, has supported them through treatment and allows them to move on to change. And so we've had many anecdotes and enlightening and heartening stories of people who have made great strides of moving on after they've achieved their cures. Rachel, what do you think are the biggest challenges for HCV elimination in the UK now? And how do they vary from a 
regional and national perspective. The biggest challenge prior to COVID was we need to case find, we need to find all those people affected. And remember within that, so we are primarily looking for people who have a history of injecting drugs, absolutely, because that's where we know the biggest transmission route is. But we must not forget there are other populations, there are people who have affected by hepatitis C who received infected blood. So finding everybody who's been affected by hepatitis C, getting them tested and supporting them through to treatment. We don't have an issue in England at the minute in terms of accessing treatment. They don't in Wales and they don't in Scotland. So across the UK, everybody has the right to access treatment and it's free, which is fantastic. My health systems are amazing. It's just about finding people and supporting them to do to access treatment and reassuring them that it's easy. It's easy to access. It stops any further liver damage and you will feel so much better if you do it. Right. I think the biggest challenge for me is making sure those regions that haven't grabbed the, the nettle get onto it. And there are parts of the UK, I'm afraid, that have still decided not to prioritise hepatitis C. I think as local authority and budgets for needle exchange programmes come under huge pressure over the next year or two, there may well be a little bit of a drift and there may well be a bit of backsliding. So I think our challenge is to keep the pressure on and bring the worst up to the same level as the best. I think COVID is going to realign our priorities for healthcare, and I see this as being an advantage. But I think the funding crisis in local authorities that will be associated with this might do some damage to the services. And I think the NHS is very good at the treatment side, but prevention, accommodation, some basic life support for some of these people is really important. If your focus is on getting a square meal once a day, you really don't have the time or the opportunity to get your hepatitis C sorted out. So we need to take away some of the cofactors to make people see that the hepatitis C is an important factor to consider. So I'm afraid my concern is that there may be a bit of backsliding over the next year or two, and we need to work very hard to prevent that. So that very much resonates with my experience as a GP, certainly when I talk to some of my patients who are living really tough lives. As you so rightly say, it's really difficult to have your priorities at the place that, of course, all of us would like them to have. And it's very difficult to recognise. So you've outlined the challenges. John, I'm going to give you the really difficult part now and ask you to ask what policymakers, what decision makers, what stakeholders can do to mitigate or address those challenges? I think we have examples of excellence scattered across the country. And it's about, we're now recognising those, but it's now making those what is the very best, the standard everywhere. And it's for every region, every local authority to start to appoint champions, people who will make sure that region catches up and makes the, makes the best of this. I think we've had a lot of physical barriers to that. COVID has liquidized those barriers. Things that were impossible to change have suddenly changed overnight. And I think we need to, if we're talking of taking positives from COVID, it's that ability to change and to be flexible. The issues around the way we manage addiction services have changed dramatically in the last few months to accommodate COVID. We can do the same to them to accommodate hepatitis C as well. So it's using that opportunity. While you quite rightly said there are lots of other killers in town, Hepatitis C is a killer that's completely curable and completely preventable. And that's the why we should do something about it. You spoke so eloquently about the importance of collaboration. How should stakeholders and organisations be working together to improve the UK model of care with 
a decade so ago. So I think it's having those organisations sitting around the same table. So in Scotland, we have mandated that there is a managed care network where all of the governmental health service, public health council and voluntary sector organisations for each area and region sit at the same table and plan what they're going to do. The ODNs in England are an example of a similar structure that can bring those parties together where you can organise yourself so that you can get the high level agreement as to how you want the services to work to allow the people on the ground to make the decisions and change and using that integration between the peers, the community, the voluntary sector and the statutory organisations to work to the most efficient way. So each organisation is you know, making it easier for the other to do, others to do their job. And play to their strengths. And play to their strengths. John, I couldn't agree more that collaboration is absolutely key here. I think one of the challenges that we have to face is that when different organisations have different budgets and slightly different goals, that really gets in the way of things. And I think it's really important that local authorities are involved in the healthcare game because they organise quite a lot of the infrastructure that has huge health impacts. But unfortunately, injection drug use, needle exchange provision is unlikely to be top of their priority over the next year or two. And I think that is the loophole in our programmes that we really need to make sure we close, because that, I think, is the big weakness. And I admire the way the Scots have managed to get everyone around a table. We've had some challenges getting everyone around the same table. And I think we need to focus on prevention, which is very much in the local authority brief. And that's an area where I think we perhaps haven't done quite enough yet. Rachel, how can community groups work with key stakeholders to help facilitate elimination efforts? It's about how can everybody work together, not just the community work with key stakeholders. How can key stakeholders work with community? It's about everybody working alongside. We, each of us, have different roles within this elimination. We offer the patient perspective, you know, and actually it's really important. You can't treat somebody unless you know how it is for them. And actually we bring so much to the table. And I think something that came out of COVID for us was the incredible partnership working that happened between NHS patient organisations, substance misuse providers. There was this incredible unity where we all came together. We all worked on the same page. There were no egos. It was just like, here's a vulnerable group of people. We just need to get them treated. The absence of egos. We just got on with it. And if you take out, it's such a shame that we need to be in a crisis to realise how simple it is. What's unique about the, the elimination deal, I think, is and the work, the majority of the work across the UK is, it is in partnership that we are doing, we are moving towards elimination. The peers work, we have honorary contracts with the hospitals. We sit on the ODM meetings, higher level meetings. We work on the same level. And what that means is we are reaching the people. Well, everyone's getting access to treatment, but the message is getting out there. Treatment has changed. Um, a lot of people live in fear of the old treatment. It, because it was painful. you It was hideous. This new treatment is so different. And how incredible. No one needs to die from hepatitis C anymore. Clearly, the patient experience and the patient voice is absolutely crucial. How important do you think lived experience is when you're working with the community? It's paramount. Paramount's not a strong enough word. I think that when I started, I didn't know anything about hepatitis C when I was diagnosed. You know, that was my first encounter how I lived my life previously, health wasn't my priority. 
and actually probably the only people that you will listen to when you're in those circumstances are people who have the same experience as yourself. You have a, a lack of trust of the health system, probably of any system, because by default, by living that kind of lifestyle, you stepped outside of society or the norms. So actually engaging with somebody who has a shared experience, you hear it. You hear things in a way in which you wouldn't normally hear them. Clearly, we have England, Scotland and now Northern Ireland represented. What about Wales? Wales started with a rather low baseline of hepatitis C for reasons that aren't entirely clear. Their injecting drug user population didn't seem to be blighted by hepatitis C as much as other countries have. But they've been doing sterling work over the last year or two, getting to grips with things. And I think they're doing uh, a very good job in heading towards elimination in the not too distant future. Hopefully not ahead of England and Scotland, of course. Building on what Graham has said about Wales, we work with Wales for years and I think it's actually, they're quite incredible because they have achieved so much. A majority of the work has been led by a consultant. He has led the way with his team of incredible nurses and with the backing of the Welsh Government. They have a liver disease plan, which hepatitis C was mentioned in. They have treated, not necessarily peers in the same way that we have in England. I guess that's the thing to say about each of the devolved nations. We all work very differently. We have the same end goal, but we work very differently. In Wales, I know that they'd had treated a majority of the people they had in prisons that they knew were hepatitis C positive. I guess that they've quite quietly under the radar just been marching on and had some incredible achievements and still are focused the same as Scotland and Ireland in moving forward. Whilst they don't have a strategy as such, they are still working in the same way that each of the other devolved nations are. And they're doing really well. It's incredible. Thank you so much, Graham, John and Rachel for joining us. And of course, for sharing your insights on Hep C elimination in the UK and where we should be focusing as we look ahead to the World Health Organization's 2030 goals. And thank all of you for listening, of course. Do tune in to our next episode where we'll be joined by three expert women and they'll be discussing the importance and the impact of multi-stakeholder collaboration to eliminate hepatitis C in the UK. If you haven't already, please subscribe to The Hepcast. The Hepcast is a collaboration between the World Hepatitis Alliance and Gilead Sciences Europe Limited. The Hepcast is fully funded by Gilead Sciences Europe Limited.